Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I am reporting live from a fort on my bed. I was inspired by Mo Rocca, who said that he records, well, when he's on, on the road, he records his audio tracks from a fort that he makes on his hotel beds. So I am doing the exact same thing minus the trip. It's really almost as exciting. But I pop my P's and bring my S's too long, and I just want to apologize to all of you profusely if you've been psychologically wounded or otherwise had to get your hearing checked due to these uh, challenges, these real developmental challenges for me. But I was I, I felt better knowing that Mo Rocca also suffers from this. Hmm, I keep talking about Mo Rocca. It seems like an extraordinarily contrived segue to plug the live show, which is happening. We're going to have a live taping of the podcast Wednesday, September 18th at the Bell House. It's our first time in Brooklyn. It seats 400 people, so I hope you... Oh, excuse me. It stands 400 people. But 350 of you can get seats if you uh, go onto the website, employeeofthemonthshow.com now, and you can see Mo Rocca, who you see on CBS... And as well, you can see the Tony Award winner, Lin-Manuel Miranda. You can see Robert Smigel and Triumph the Insult Dog, Cabaret Starlet Lady Rizzo, and, drumroll please, Lee Daniels presents the Danny Strong, which is such a great segue because on this podcast, I sat down with Danny Strong. Danny Strong is an actor and writer. My um, producer was so excited to hear that Danny's going to be making an appearance at the live taping. She's like, wait, that guy from Buffy? I love that guy. I was like, I feel like he's done a zillion things since Buffy. He has. Most recently, he's been a recurring character on Mad Men, and he wrote Recount and Game Change. He won an Emmy and was nominated for about a zillion others. I'm really big on the word zillion today. And he just most recently wrote The Butler, which he also appears in. I know what you're thinking. I thought that was Forrest Whitaker. Anyways, please welcome... Danny Strong, and I hope you enjoy our interview, which took place at the Writers Guild. And you better come out and join us on September 18th. Okay, have fun. I'll talk to you soon. Have fun storming the castle, everyone. Danny Strong, very excited to have you on the show on Employee of the Month. Um, congratulations on winning this award after an Emmy. This must be huge for you. And no, it's very exciting. I'm actually thinking about giving my Emmys back so that I've got more. Sp- place for my employee of the month <laughs> award Black. I wanted to have. I've got this whole disco light system that I've been planning in my head for how to set it up. So Should I refer to you as Lee Daniels, the Danny Strong? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually, because I've heard a lot of Lee Daniels, the jokes, and that's the best <laughs> one yet. So congratulations. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just start off with your acting for a little bit, and then we're going to sure. dig into your writing. But So at 23, you were got a sort of a big breakout role playing a 15-year-old. I, I became the sex symbol of my generation at 23. Playing a 15-year-old. When you, oh, you mean on Seinfeld? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was very exciting. So I was a theater major at USC and doing plays and auditioning with very little success. And then I graduated from USC and I booked a small part on Third Rock from the Sun, which was a very exciting because the show was huge yes. at the time. And then it was the same casting director, Seinfeld. And then uh, th- four weeks later, he brought me into audition for Seinfeld and I got the part. So I went from literally almost no credits on my resume to Third Rock from the Sun and Seinfeld on my resume. To having a resume. Yeah, kind of. It was very cool. I thought it was interesting that you grew up in in Manhattan, 
Beach. I, I'm, it's so foreign to me. And, and um, Manhattan Beach, California. Yes. Yes. It seems like such a suburban, sleepy. It is. Well, it's a very wealthy city now, but when I was a kid, it wasn't. It was a very middle-class, sleepy beach town. And it had this full beach town identity. It was very mellow, and it was surfers and volleyball players and stoners and the whole thing. Very un-Jewish. It was very un-Jewish, yeah. I was, I mean, there were other Jewish kids there, but growing up in Manhattan Beach, I didn't have any sort of Jewish identity living there because it's a beach identity. So, and I don't even, I mean, I remember being some Jewish kids, but I remember no one ever made fun of me for being Jewish, or there was no, right. I think there was no religious identity to anyone in Manhattan Beach. To anyone Beach. whatsoever. Yeah. I only brought it up because I also grew up in a really waspy area in D.C. and was Jewish, and I, it was certainly not a factor, but I find now as a writer and comedian it's such a relevant part, and you go out for a lot of parts in which someone puts you in, I don't want to say a Jewish role, mm-hmm. but certainly on Mad Men and, um, I would say, there, there's an Pretty much just there. that. <laughs> Pretty much just That's that. That's the only one kind role. of role I think yeah, I've ever played where the character was distinctly didn't Jewish. You do, didn't you do some Sydney? Yeah, white, but, it, but it was nothing to do with being Jewish. Being a, being a, a funny Jewish writer. It yeah. was, uh, no, the, that part, Sydney White with Sam, that was, um, it was called Sydney White. It so could it was, be it, any it was a takeoff on Snow White of the Seven Dorks as dwarfs, but we were yeah. quote unquote dorks. But so you could have been a dwarf of any Of any ethnicity. Jewish, Buddhist, Islamic, okay, Hindu. So we'll take all of that back. All of that back. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just my own pure sure. um, self-hating. I used to lose parts to Sam Levine so much. Is that right? Yeah. I would just, you know, he was, he. I can't say we were rivals because in order to be rivals, I would have to be a threat to him, which I never was. And it was always like, oh, Sam Levine's auditioning for this. Oh, I'm never going to get it now. And there Is were that cer- true? And there, yeah, and there were certain parts that I got because he was not available. So he must be thrilled now that your writing career has taken off. Yeah, we're, we're, we became good friends on Sydney White. Okay. Yeah, and he is like an old Jewish man. He he does seem like that. Yeah, perhaps, he's, got, he's like an old Kvetch, like the imaginary invalid, the Moliere play. Could have been based upon Sam Levine <laughs> had he been alive during Moliere's time. On Buffy, I, so I went to Wesleyan, and um, there were many Whedons, all of them almost, I think, who went to school with me. Um, and so Buffy was big then, but it, it wasn't as big in the rest of the country when it was on the air. It became, I think, it became bigger after. That's is, accurate. That, is that a fair? That's, that's very accurate. It was in, when we were on the air, we were kind of cool, because we had, we had um, uh, uh, our audience was, you know, your sci-fi kind of geek chic audience. And then there was also kind of Mine like- Mine the chic, but huh? yeah, keep going. Yeah, I was just trying to be nice. And then kind of like this kind of like cool, um, there, there was like a cool audience to Buffy too, particularly in Los Angeles. There were a lot of TV writers watch Buffy, and a lot of people where it was sort of like, you know, you don't know about Buffy, but in fact, Buffy's very cool. Um, but it had no Even main- at the time. Even at the time, yes. but there was no mainstream quality to it whatsoever, and I would never get recognized for it on the street when I was on it. And then since it's been off the air, it's gotten so much bigger. I get recognized multiple times a week just from Buffy. But the other odd part to me is that, like, I've had Gail Collins, who's a New York Times columnist, and Emily Nussbaum, who's a New Yorker TV critic on the show. And it has become a touchstone to people who are either academics or journalists as a sign that they are are cool and in the zeitgeist and actually interested in television. And so in some ways, I feel it shepherded in this renaissance on television where suddenly people who want to be noted for being intelligent cite Buffy as, a, as an example. Well, I think you summed it up perfectly, which is more like intelligent people who are wanting to uh, be a part of, quote-unquote, pop culture or a show that they're not elitist. 
um, also have a deep connection to the show, which penetrated academia as well. I mean, there uh, people take Wesleyan. courses on on Joss Whedon and on the verse of Buffy and the verse of Whedon and et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it's very, um, someone once sent me a dissertation on my character that they had written and, and for to get their master's degree. And I, I just was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. This is madness. Did you want to write their parents and be like, do you understand? No, how I did much write their parents. Spending? I'm like, you need to know about this. This is what you've done. This is what your child's done with that education. Um, no, I, I actually thought it was very sweet. Um, but it's, it's, you know, the show has become, I don't know. I mean, I want to say like modern mythology. I'm worried that may sound too corny or too wave verbose and absurd, but it sometimes feels like that the way people respond to it and people have tattoos, Buffy tattoos. And, you know, one time I was walking down a dark alley. I used to write when I lived in L.A. at this coffee shop called Insomnia. Oh, my God, that place depresses. Just even hearing the name, this makes me feel sad inside. Well, oh, this will make you feel even sadder. I wrote there for like six years, spent sitting at Insomnia writing. And so I remember one time it was one in the morning and I would park in the back alley behind. And I was walking down the alley and it was one in the morning and this car drove by and the car skidded to a stop and this guy jumped out of the car and he was enormous. He was like six foot five and he was a very heavy set guy. And I was like, well, this is it. This is my death. You know, I was just, I literally, my heart jumped into my mouth, my throat. And I was, was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die in this moment. And he goes, I just want you to know that Jonathan Levinson is my favorite TV character of all time. And it just means so much to me. And I was, I, I couldn't even comprehend that I wasn't going to die, that in fact this was a Buffy fan. And I was like, what? what? And then he had this immediate sadness that he had just kind of poured his heart out to his favorite character and the character was not responding or acknowledging. And he immediately was like, oh, like, like, oh, I'm sorry. And, and, and I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I thought you were going to kill me. And, he, I, and I really did believe that. So it was... I, basically, the point of that story is I let down a Buffy fan profoundly, and if you're listening, I'm sorry. I just thought I was going to die. And also, please, everyone out there, stop going to Insomnia Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I thought it must have been so flattering to have, and I, I've met Amy Sherman Palladino. You, you have a history of, of working with really intelligent people. Um, I thought that must have been so flattering to have her write you a role. Was he, It was wonderful. For Gilmore Girls? Yeah, I love Amy. So... I had done a TV show with Amy and her husband, Dan Palladino, who's a very, very talented writer, was a Family Guy writer for years. He was on the years. Family Guy, that's right. Yeah, and then was like Amy's partner on Gilmore Girls for all those seasons. And um, I had done a show with them called Over the Top, but I didn't realize that they were involved with it. And I had a very small part, but then they wrote me onto the show. And they wrote this huge guest star part for me that was then going to become a character on the show. And the week we shot that episode, the show was canceled. So I had just completely forgotten about this entire experience. And then several years later, I get a phone call that uh, it's, there's this role for you on Gilmore Girls, and it's just a straight offer. And I was not getting straight offers at the time, and I was completely baffled at how this came to be, but very excited. And I showed up, and Dan Palladino uh, was, came up to me, and he said, you know, you don't remember me, but we worked on Over the Top together. So they basically created this role for me from knowing me from over the top five six years earlier but they were also Buffy fans so they had seen me on Buffy yes. over the years and uh and then and so that was Doyle on Gilmore Girls and I did the first episode and then I ended up doing four years of Doyle so it was extremely flattering but even on and they're Buff good friends of mine now too oh they are yeah they're, real good friends they're also between New York and LA yeah but even um 
with Buffy, you're only a series regular for one season. So even with that, it's not as steady. Am I correct? It was never steady, except that one season of Buffy where I was one of the series regulars is I think the only time I've ever had a contract, a long-term contract, as an actor. So literally, my entire 20s as an actor, and I supported myself. I didn't have a day job from the age of 23 on, but it was always a hustle. Like every year, I would look back upon the year and be like, wow, so how did I do that? How did I pay my bills that year as an actor? And it never ended for years and years and years where I was just hustling all the time. And, and that's the tough part about an acting career is that you are, unless you're a series regular on a show, you get the second that job's over, you're looking for new work. Well, that's why I think there's always that cliche of like, unless you can't do anything else, then do this. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and even then you shouldn't do it either. <laughs> I don't want to discourage any of you listeners out there, but it's a tough racket. I did um, love hearing about how you had to go audition for 30 Rock after winning the Emmy for yeah. <laughs> your films. And I have never blown an audition. I don't act anymore, but I blew my 30 Rock audition like nobody's. Like, I went in and like, tell us about yourself. And I was so overwhelmed. Instead of being like, you know, I have this hit show every month at UCB. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was like, well, I have two brothers, and oh. uh, my favorite color is red. Like, I think that's great, though. <laughs> like, I think it's a good way to do it. I, I can certainly say it was not, as I did not get the You're like, I'm part. a fan of fuchsia, and I don't know why. <laughs> don't Help me through this. <laughs> but I just could not pick up on the cues of like, no, you're supposed to be selling yourself. Uh -huh. The other role that seemed to fall into your lap was Mad Men. No, I had to audition for that. You did have to audition, yeah. and you were in Indiana doing, doing some type oh, of Oh, yeah, where are you getting this information? What are, what are you doing with your days? You, we need to find you a hobby. This is like, no, I was, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, God, it's so funny because I'm not supposed to talk about this. I'm not supposed to talk about that audition process. And I did on some interview, right, that you read. Yeah. That's crazy to me. So basically, I, um, yeah, I, I had stopped acting. I moved to New York City yes. after Recount. And Recount goes into production. I get off, I do Sydney White. I get off the plane. I go straight into pre-production on Recount. And basically, from that moment, I stopped acting for almost two years, maybe even longer. Which you've said were the best two years of your Greatest life. two years of my life. I'd never been happier. And I had no real interest in going back into acting, although it was sort of weird. I didn't know if I should shut the door completely on it, but I just kept kind of just pushing it away. Like, I'm just not going to think about it because I'm living in New York City and I don't have to audition and I'm not getting rejected on a weekly basis. I was you, saving that for my personal life. Is that and true? No. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm kind of doing shtick here with you, all right? Yeah, don't. So uh, what are you kidding? You're doing it. So I... Uh, I can't get out of it. That's my personality. <laughs> so I, uh, then I did a play reading at Playwrights Horizons, and I had a great time. And my manager, my acting manager, who had every few months would call me and be like, so can we start sending you out now? Which I very much appreciated. David Sweeney, wonderful manager. And, so I and find, he's been a long-term manager, too. I've been with him for 12 years, 14 years. That's exciting. So, I, uh, so after I did that play reading, I called him and I said, look, I'll start auditioning again, but only stuff that's really great because I don't need this, and I only want to do it if it's something that I actually genuinely want to do, which had never been how I lived my life as an actor for the previous decade. No, because if it's your day job, it's your day I job. I just need, I need a, a job. I need anything to pay my rent and to make my insurance and any job I could get. I mean, I would never turn down an audition throughout those, those nine, ten years where I was hustling. So then the first call he had was Mad Men. And he said, I've got this, well, how about Mad Men? And I thought, I thought, wow, that's literally my favorite show on television. 
I had met Matt Weiner during the awards season on yeah. Recount. Is it just, you guys are all, is it like the same 50 people just hanging out nonstop for whoever? It's kind of less than that. It's okay. kind of like this group of people where if you're all nominated, you know, it's like the same group of TV shows and movies are nominated yeah. for a specific award season. Yeah. So you see them at the same event every weekend. It's my, my only likening it is to sort of like a, a small political campaign, like if you're running. Yeah, like it, it absolutely the same is. candidates and, and their and, press handlers. And you'll notice it seems to be like there's one project in each category that kind of very quickly is the breakout winner and that they kind of sweep the award. Yeah, like they, last year yeah. it was Argo and Game Change and Homeland. Yes. So it was like they kind of go and they win. And I was part of that where I wasn't the big sweeper on Recount, although we did win some awards. Yes. But John Adams was the big was the big bulldog that year in my category. Oh, that's right. And then so so I've been through it twice. Once is in the one who's losing week after week, and then once and uh, where we were winning week after week. Which one did you enjoy more? Oh, definitively the winning. <laughs> Go figure. So crazy. Um, do you have a fear of failure? No, absolutely not. That's what art is. <laughs> like if you feel if you fear failure in art, like well, how can you create art? All art is is failing. I don't and, know. And I, trying to make it better. Because also failure and success in writing and in acting, they're not opposite ends of the spectrum. I have my arms stretched out wide for all of you listening. Which is about three inches. They're yeah. literally right next to each other. Success and failure, one adjustment can make something that doesn't work into something that works. So if you fear failure, I think you, you, you're probably not doing this for a living. You're probably doing something else. I, I mean, I would would um i'm fascinated by what you just said um but i have heard like i interviewed alexander Payne, and he said he had a fear of failure and i said i had a fear of success i think a lot of people fear success and they subconsciously sabotage themselves yeah i do that yeah and he was like no i, I can't not succeed so it's just in intrigued because you've yeah you've, also you've he's picked. someone too he's one of my heroes i, I mean i love his work yeah. so much and i think i think um when you achieve a level and i'm totally doing armchair psychology here and I may have no idea what I'm talking about. Unlike unlike me and the rest of the country. But yes. when you've got a level of success that he has, right? He's made these masterpiece films and then he takes seven years off before he makes The Descendants, right? Which was my favorite film of that year. Um, I think that, I think maybe those seven years come about because of you're scared of failure because you've achieved basically the highest levels of the business. And then I think there are other people that kind of just don't sweat it and they just keep like like Woody Allen clearly doesn't fear failure at all. He just wants to write, shoot, cut, write, shoot, cut, write, shoot, cut. So you kind of have these, these, different, these different mentalities. Yes. Yeah. And, and obviously sometimes these are happening simultaneously within the same body. Sure. Did you have to audition for Lee Daniels, the butler? You mean for my role? Yeah. Um, the role of the writer, or the role of the executive producer, the role of freedom the, journalist on bus. The role of the swarmy, the swarmy, swarmy. swarmy. <laughs> someone said, what did someone swarmy, describe it as? A swarmy, writer. swarmy Jew reporter looking for hot civil rights action. That yes. was the okay. description someone so, gave. So there's two parts in which you played sort of a three as far as I'm concerned. Well, I don't think that, that character is specifically labeled a Jew. I think this person said that and perhaps you could argue he was being anti-Semitic. I don't know. I'm not going to no, argue he's being anti-Semitic. I'm going to argue he's being accurate because both my brother and uh -huh. my theses in college were on the civil rights movement and Jews' roles. In the and there were a lot of Jews. Movement. Well, you know, it's funny because that part was supposed to be a reporter, but we cut out the scene and just kept our improvisation. So he could just be a civil rights activist, although it says in the credits that he's a reporter. Um, but the way it plays, you would not know. No, so what happened was, was 
there was another actor who was going to play a white civil rights activist, a non-Jewish actor, and he was very, uh, very, very famous actor. Because I, I don't know if you noticed, but it's all famous actors in I that didn't movie. I did see that. I was not distracted by that. At by all, all the famous film. people in the movie. Yeah. And then so he um, dropped out. <coughs> he dropped out a week before because of scheduling. And Lee Daniels called me and he said we lost him. We he, we, he dropped out because of scheduling. So why don't you do this? Rewrite the scene, lose the freedom, the white freedom writer, make it a reporter, and you play the reporter and write a great scene for yourself, which was literally the sweetest phone call I've ever gotten. Isn't that so sweet? Yeah, it's so flattering. So it was so nice, and I probably spent more time on that you know, page and a half scene than I did on the entire script. And then uh, wrote the scene, and then we shot the scene, and then we did some improvisation as well. And then he shows me the first cut, and it's all the improvisation and none of the scene. And I said, Lee, where's my scene? And he just sort of laughing. He's like, man, I got it. This is a long movie. It's a long movie. Now, I thought, um, I'm just going to sort of segue ahead. You were disgruntled with acting and really not with acting, but with dealing with rejection and the insecurity of it. And I can certainly relate. And this is a show about jobs. So this is great to talk about. I quit stand-up and started writing. And I think you're the only other person I know who's like, you know what will be really stable is writing. <laughs> you know what's so funny is a friend of mine said that to me almost verbatim. He, I said, you know, I'm just like really unhappy with, with acting and it's so frustrating. I think I'm going to start writing. And he said, why are you going to go into a career that's even harder <laughs> than the one you're doing now? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And they started talking to me about being a stockbroker. And I'm like, what the hell? What, what are you talking about? It's <laughs> the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I'm going to be a stockbroker. Um, but So you move to New York, and you write a bunch of scripts that don't go anywhere. Right? No, no. Sequence of events. Incorrect. Although someone wrote that is that way. So tell so me So you might really have gotten happened. it from your research. Yeah. Uh, so or no. Adam Bush. But yeah, Adam Bush. Uh, <laughs> A communist sympathizer. Most people don't know that. Is about that him. true? I he actually on, have no idea. He was on Employee of the Month and didn't mention that. He part didn't of mention his communist sympathies. No. Um, so I, that's cool. He was on your show. I, I love Adam. He's a dear friend of mine. He. Uh, so, anyways, what happened? I started writing when I was like 26 in LA. Um, I wrote a script for me to star in, like many actor does. And one of the things that inspired me to start writing it was a few things. One was. An actor, my Sam Levine, an actor I was competing against named Michael Bacall, wrote a script and sold it. And he was one of my best friends. And I was brimming with jealousy because he wasn't going on Toasty Nut Puff commercials with me anymore. Yes. <laughs> he was now taking meetings with studio executives and producers. And he made all this money on the script. And I was so jealous. And he was, being the great friend that he is, kept encouraging me to start writing. He just said, you know, you should really do this yourself. I'm telling you, you're going to love it, blah, blah, blah. So that combined with a couple movies that came out that year, um, Swingers and Election. Oh, God. So, so seeing those two movies, really, <laughs> I just, I was so taken by the voice of them, particularly sw or Election. I remember watching Election feeling like, oh, I want to do that. I want to write I want to write that, which is kind of funny because then the first two movies I got made were both about elections. Well, and also that, you know, the Reese Witherspoon's character in Election becomes a pivotal way to understand Hillary Clinton, becomes this, you know, iconic touchstone when explaining phenomenally successful driven women. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's I mean, Tracy Flick has become a prototype. Yes. It's become an archetype. Yes. In um, fact, one that you probably had to negotiate when you were writing Sarah Palin's Without character. a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, we would talk, there was a certain amount of Tracy Flick in, in uh, Governor Palin. But 
So it was those it was those things, and so I started writing. But then when I sold Recount to HBO as a pitch, I was still living in Los Angeles. Okay. So I came to New York, uh, having had Recount made, having gone through actually having you know lost the Emmy and etc. So okay. I was already an established writer when I came here. Am I supposed to sympathize with losing the Emmy? Part? No, but that's okay. what happened. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, because I won four years later. Vengeance was mine. Because the first thing you ever got made happened to get made on HBO with an all-star cast. I know. But you just didn't happen to win the Emmy. For, that I know that bummed me out though. <laughs> was that uh, tough? What you know what? Every because it, when you're at the Emmys, right? You're in a room of eighty percent of the room has lost. And everyone's pissed. It's kind of funny. People really get mad. Yeah, well, they're not like furious, but they're, I mean, actually some people are. But I mean, you're just disappointed because you wanted to win. So you're in a room of people that are like disappointed and a little annoyed. And It doesn't ever like seem like a media racket to you? What do you mean? Well, it just seems from the outside that it's like, it should be sort of enough to just be nominated. It no, you want like the a trophy. A PR stint. Okay. Because also, I mean, look, an Emmy, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, these are famous awards. Yeah, and they're, Employee they're, they're, of they're the ver- Month. They're very famous Employee of the Month. Do you know what I'm going to do with my Employee of the Month award? <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm nervous, too. I'm nervous about it coming. <laughs> um, I did, I did want to also ask, because you did Brown versus the Board of Education. We're going to do a film on that. What happened with that movie? Well, it's so difficult to get any movie made ever. It's just a, every project, it's, it's like, um, it's, I call it Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Literally everything you write, it's Mission Impossible to get it made. And that, that project was not dissimilar to other projects I've, I've written where it got made. And I mean, I didn't get made, I wrote it. And, uh, and it doesn't just really go anywhere. And in that case, that was a weird confluence of events because I wrote it for Universal. And it was at a time when Universal made a declaration that they weren't going to make dramas anymore. Oh, wow. So they put all their dramas into turnaround. And so I got this phone call uh, from the producer, and he said, so I know you haven't finished the script yet, but you're now in turnaround. So I was dead in the water at the studio before I'd finished writing the script. So what do you do? You know, it's been, it's, uh, it's, but I still finished it, and I hope to get it made someday. When, when you were working on films like Game Change and Recount and even The Butler, you're going and talking to people who do serious work for a living, and then you're a Hollywood actor to them. You know, it's particularly on the first films. Yeah. You know, they're only going to know you from TV. Well, Recount, yes. I mean, Game Change, I'd already made Recount, okay. so that's, that's enough cred okay. for, for that stage. Okay, so that's good to know. But for the first one, how did you get folks to take you seriously? It's a great question. I mean, I still to this day don't know. Basically... I had sold, I think it was because it was sold as a pitch to HBO. So I'm making these phone calls, which is, hey, I'm writing a movie for HBO about the Florida recount. I don't know if I would have gotten in those rooms had I not been able to use that phrase. Yes. Um, however, once I got into the room, I, you know, and I look very young. Your, your uh, listeners uh, may not know what I look like. I mean, in, back then, this was six years ago. Tall, dark, and handsome. Very, very sexy. <laughs> but I looked um, extremely young at that time, like 24. I think I probably looked like I was 24, 23. And I was wearing a suit trying to look mature. So yes. I looked like it was like I was going to my bar mitzvah, yes. you know? <laughs> and so I'm like, hi, you know, I'm here to interview you. But so basically, it would be a matter of just kind of winning them over in the room, not that I was necessarily auditioning but, for them. Okay, but how do you do that? So like, I'm, I'm just going to take like with the fancy, you know, you have David Boys and people like that who are completely used to having their uh, work potentially be adapted to film and television. How do you get them to open up and say something new to you 
and entrust you with their story when they're also just lawyers. I mean, even if they weren't famous sure. and successful lawyers, sure. they're still pretty guarded. Well, there was a few things I had going on my side. By the way, when I did this for Recount, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never interviewed anyone. I had no background in journalism, in politics, in law, any of it. I was literally uh, an actor, mostly from television shows, going in flying by the seat of my pants. And it was a very thrilling time of my life because I was going into rooms with Ron Klain, Ben Ginsburg, David Boyes, James Baker, and by the way, by the time I got Jim. to about my 10th, Jim, Jim Baker, Secretary Baker, by the time I got to my uh, like 10th or 12th interview, I was actually starting to get pretty confident. But those first few interviews, it was really crazy. So here's what I had going for me, though, is A, it was the Florida recount that people were very bitter about if they were Democrats, Absolutely. very proud about if they were Republicans, and this universal feeling the story hadn't really been told because these books had come out but they'd all come out after 9-11, so no one wanted to read them. So I, I also would argue that it's in addition to coming out around 9-11, because I actually think that that's not necessarily true for, for a large part of the audience. I think that there was so much trauma involved in having watched that election end the way that it did, mm -hmm. that some people didn't want to look at it further, like and to, to, to continue to march on. I, I disagree. It was all because of 9-11, literally. Because of 9-11, no one wanted to read My about a book about the commander-in-chief that everyone was rallying behind, that this may not be a legitimate commander-in-chief. No one wanted to read about that. My, my office building blew up. I have, you know, uh -huh. colleagues and folks who passed away. I, I can't imagine um, not wanting to read about it because it's because of the president. That was the universal sentiment that, okay. that everyone felt, okay. that fought in the recount. It's not unusual so, that my opinion is not it's in, not, the, in well, the mainstream. And I don't want to <laughs> invalidate your opinion or fight with you no, no, no. anymore because I'm sick of fighting. But it's also you have to keep in mind the mindset, too, of looking back upon it now as opposed to in 2001, 9-11's just happened. Everyone is shell-shocked. The last thing they want to read about is the Florida recount. Okay. Okay. And that's when they, all these books came out. It okay. was crazy. It was like within one week to four weeks of the Florida recount, I mean of 9-11, that's when these series of books came out. So, um, so, so people were perfectly w willing to talk about it when in 2006 hmm. I was going to see them. But also I had an encyclopedic, encyclopedic, help me with the word. Encyclopedic. Encyclopedic. It's a fine hmm. word. Knowledge except I don't know the word itself, of the Florida recount. So I knew the Florida recount backwards and forwards because I had read 27 books on it. Who, who were the, the authors that you read that you really that really stuck well, out Well, there to were you? four, and we hired them to be our consultants. Okay. They were Jeffrey Tubin, uh, David Kaplan, David Von Drehle, and Jake Tapper. Okay. So we hired them as our consultants on the project. And then we also hired Mark Halperin as a consultant uh, just because Richard Pluffer at HBO felt like Halperin had a real encyclopedic grasp yes. of the Florida recount. And then basically with these interviews, what happened was me not knowing what I'm doing was in some ways my biggest advantage because I just went in there and I just would, t I would talk to them and I'd be, and I'd say, well, how, how'd you feel about that? Tell me your story. And I know with a lot of the Republicans I interviewed who feel antagonistic towards Hollywood, for them, they opened up, uh, you know, they very easily opened up to me and they, they told me Many of them told me, I told you more than I've ever told a reporter because I don't trust the reporters, but all you wanted to know was my own experience and how I felt about it. They, so these interviews weren't confrontational whatsoever. It was like, take me through your story. And the interviews were fantastic. And 
the, I remember my interview with Secretary of State James Baker, who, I, man, it was terrific. I mean, we talked for an hour and a half. The stories he told me were just great. He was so bombastic and charismatic, which was something that I hadn't gotten from the books I'd read about him. I, I just think, didn't get a sense of it to the extent of being in a room with the guy. I think also, uh, and it was just, sorry to interrupt, but I think such an important um, part to remember that this person is doing something, whether you agree with them or not, because they really do value their own opinion. And I think that often gets lost. I just wanted their opinion. I wanted how they felt. And it was the same approach I had on Game Change, which was all Republicans. Um, there are no Democrats were consulted or harmed in the making of that movie. It was literally just um, the, the McCain-Palin campaign. And everyone who spoke to me, I felt like, um, I felt like they, you know, they really opened up. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't say everyone. I, I've, the 25 interviews I did on Game Change, 24 of them said the book Game Change was completely accurate. And one said it was all lies. Who was the one? Uh, his name's Randy Schooneman, and I'm only saying that because I've already said it on record. And he was, at the time I interviewed him, was Sarah Palin's foreign policy advisor. So I felt like he's on the payroll right now. Uh, perhaps that is why his version contradicts the other 24 people. And he can see Russia from his house. <laughs> um, I really did want to ask, though, when you're writing about people who are alive mm -hmm. and you're taking stories from other people who are alive, how do you create a character? I mean, you have to create a character that's an hour or two hours long of someone's full life story. What, what do you pick and choose? Well, you're not, I'm not doing their full life story. Um, in the case of... In the case of Recount and Game Change, the, the Recount takes place over 36 days. Game Change takes place over 60 days. And those are very taut, tight stories. And I'm occasionally dropping in elements of their lives outside. You know, we get a little bit of backstory. We get a little bit of information. But I, I try to only use things that are instrumental in helping the drama and the themes of the immediacy of the story that we're now living through. So, in the, and by living through, I mean as an audience member. What I should have asked, and I apologize for wording it so poorly, is, uh -huh. is are there elements of Sarah Palin that you left out that you wish you could have put in but simply didn't have the time or space? Not really. Not really, because I wasn't making a Sarah Palin biopic. I was making the story of a woman who overnight becomes the most famous person in the world, and she's auditioning to be uh, one heartbeat away from the President of the United States, and she can't answer fundamental questions. And that's an amazing story. That's an, that's an amazing story, A, that it happened. It's amazing for the character itself of Sarah Palin to dramatize someone who was going through this. Everyone, you know, one of the big things that people came away from was they were shocked at how sympathetic or empathetic they felt towards her that they had never felt that way to her. And they kept congratulating me on doing that like it was some hat trick. And from my point of view, it was never not going to be that because what her own experience was was incredibly dramatic of literally being thrust in the, in the international spotlight overnight, having to answer questions and knowing you don't know the answers. I immediately related to that. I told Jay Roach, the director of the movie, I said, this is an actor's nightmare, which if you don't know what that is for our listeners right now, it's a nightmare actors have, which is when they're on stage and they don't know their lines. Yeah, but and I... And I've had that nightmare many times. So there's an anxiety dream quality to it that is what I felt was the emotional experience of what she was going through. That, that's partly true, but I, I felt that No, it's entirely true. I felt... It may be true for an it's actor. It's definitively true. It's definitely true for an mm -hmm. actor, but I, I felt um, you were able to, to create a very sympathetic 
complex, nuanced portrait of her. But I would I would not um, draw a parallel between being an actor and being a politician who's who's run for the types of offices that she's run for. So I, I do. What think, do you mean? Meaning that when she was working in Alaska, even if, if it's if people can say, well, it's a small place to be a mayor. She's uh-huh. still running for it. <laughs> you know. Um, but I mean, one even of the if it's small potatoes in, a, in the larger scale of, of political positions, she still has enough ambition to get herself in through doors. Sure, but I, what we're saying is not contradictory. Okay, you're saying that you can have that. You can have that. I'm drive just saying ambition. that that was the emotional experience she was going through was that of an actor's nightmare, which was the anxiety of being of being on stage opening night and not knowing your lines. Except in her case, on stage meant the entire world. And it wasn't a nightmare. It was really happening. She, there, she would not wake up from this. She had actually had to live it. And we lived through that nightmare with her. The Katie Couric interview? Yes. I mean, it's literally could be one of the worst interviews by a political candidate in the history of the country. And we lived through her actor's nightmare. And so trying to find the emotional quality or, or just the emotion of, of what she's going through, it wasn't difficult. It just it just wasn't difficult. So this is a perfect transition to um, the Butler Lee Daniels. The Butler, Lee Daniels the Butler. Because here you're going from writing a film with a really active character who has so many dimensions to her, um, to creating a film that's almost a survey film in the way that Forrest Gump is, um, from a character that's relatively, for lack of a better word, passive. Yeah. Or what's, well, it's look that is literally. When Laura Ziskin, who was the producer of the project that started it, the late, great, beloved uh, Laura Ziskin, she's a film legend, and she passed away uh, from cancer. She started uh, stand-up to cancer. So, so she has this amazing legacy. Which is a, a wonderful a benefit that raises awareness and money um, for cancer research. Yeah, and it's probably one of the more famous organizations in the country now that raises money for cancer research. But so when she brought the article to me, that was, <clears throat> and it was no secret to her, that was the inherent... This is the Washington Challenge. Post. This is Will Haygood's Washington Post Washington Post profile on Eugene Allen, the White House Butler. Yes. So that's where it all began. Was that profile, and Laura Ziskin with Sony Pictures optioned the article, and then she thought I would be the right writer for it. So she brings it to me, and then there's there's two inherent challenges. One, how do you keep the dramatic tension over thirty years of history, and then two, how do you tell how do you write a movie in which your protagonist is passive. And I said to her, I said, I don't know if it can be done. And she gave me this look of like, uh, okay, well, you know, we just paid good money for this article, so it'd be nice if you could figure it out. Um, I, the, her producing partner, Pam Williams, who took over for Laura and made it her mission to get the movie made in Laura's memory, uh, told me that they were really discouraged when I said that to them. But I was just being truthful. I just said, I don't know, how do you make a movie about a White House butler? The only time... I had ever seen anything like this was Remains of the Day, mm-hmm. which oh, is... What a gorgeous film. Yeah, it's a masterpiece, right? Remains of the Day is literally a perfect film, but I knew that Sony Pictures was not looking to make a small little drama like that. They were looking for the Forrest Gump-type movie, and I agreed that this is the way to do this isn't Remains of the Day, it's Forrest Gump, but how do you do it? And the only person I've ever seen pull off Forrest Gump is the guy who wrote Forrest Gump, Eric Roth. No, that's right, because Benjamin Button... I thought was... Well, I really like Benjamin Button, but it was the same writer, yes. Eric Roth. So he's the only guy that's ever done this, like, sweeping through history. And so I, long after we did this, um, I turned to Pam Williams and I said, why didn't you go to Eric Roth? And she said, oh, he wasn't available. So, 
<laughs> it wasn't because we think you've done such a good job <laughs> making political wonky people who can be a little sure. more political wonky. No, Eric Roth wasn't available. <laughs> Which, by the way, I mean, do you want the guy who wrote Forrest Gump or do you want the guy who wrote Recount? Of course you're going to go after Eric Roth first. And I was not insulted at all because he's, he's a legend in our business. But um, so those were the inherent challenges of how to put this together. And it's, I think, for me, the most difficult thing I've ever done as a writer was constructing the story and the real breakthrough. So for any of you who haven't read any of the interviews about this movie, the character in the movie is Cecil Gaines. He's not Eugene Allen. Cecil Gaines, so who is Cecil Gaines? He is a composite character inspired by Eugene Allen, but also based on other butlers I interviewed, other ushers. You, you have a question. Well, because they were going to say inspired by a true story. And I have to say, I lost 15 pounds of water weight crying throughout this film. Uh -huh. it, it was just absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you. Um, but when it said inspired by a true story, I thought it should be <laughs> inspired by true stories. Well, I say to people uh, that this film's not inspired by a true story. It's inspired by many true stories. So I think what you're saying is accurate. However... The phrase inspired by a true story is as loose as you're going to get. I mean, it's not even based on a true story. Okay. It's inspired by a true okay. story. I mean, I, I think our wording is, is not unfair whatsoever to say that because it's very, it's very loose once you say okay. that. Because I really then thought that the butler's son, like, ran for Congress. Like, I, I had to go home and, like... Oh, and were you Read. disappointed? <laughs> Was it a big drag? Were you like, why has Hollywood manipulated me? Well, because I had seen the Linda Lovelace... Uh, biopic the week before and also had the same experience where I was like, this is all true. Oh, uh, was it not? <laughs> no. Well, see, but see, that's why I, and I, and I said it very early on, I said, I'm going to change his name because I'm this is not did. Eugene Allen. And I think that's a big hint once we've changed the name that it's quite fictionalized. But the goal of it was to, when I was getting all these other stories, was to create not <laughs> the truth of Eugene Allen, but the universal truth of A, what it was like to be working in the White House during these tumultuous periods of U.S. history, but forget the White House, about just the American experience from 1950 to Obama and what that, what that is. And there's, you know, the New York Times, um, in their review of the film, they said it's, it's kind of fable-like in a way. And that's not untrue. There is sort of a fable quality to the film of taking this father and this son and using them to tell the story of the civil rights movement. And all the history in the movie is true. All those events did happen, all the decisions the presidents made, all the points of view of the presidents, these are all their points of view. In many ways, it's, it's a, a classical piece of historic, historical fiction, you know, where you have fictional characters, in this case composite characters, that are, are used as vehicles to take you through true events and true history. Now, it certainly shed light. I mean, my grandfather worked directly with Martin Luther King Jr., and my father worked with SNCC, and, and I certainly got a sense of what it was like to be um, white and involved um, in this era. I was curious, was there any either internal pressure or issues of writing someone else's history? Well, but everything I write is someone else's history. Okay. So for me, because I get asked that a lot on this project, but... You know, no one asked me on Game Change what was it like as a man to write Sarah Palin. And it was, to be honest with you, I have much more in common with the White House butler than I do with Sarah Palin from my own, my own personal worldview. Um, and so it's just the same that you do that a professional writer does on any project, which is you write characters that aren't yourself. And that's your job to try and get in the mindset of these characters as best you can in the case of this. 
I um, researched like crazy, like I do on all my stuff. I interviewed numerous White House butlers, including Eugene Allen, and that was a real kind of special moment. And then I had my secret weapon, which was Lee Daniels, the director. So, so he came onto the project later. He came after a year. Okay. So I wrote the script. I wrote four drafts over a year. And then Lee came on board. And then Lee and I collaborated on the script for years after. And he had so many wonderful ideas and so much of the authenticity of the world and helped deepen the characters and because he lived it. And so there are elements he, in there that are based upon his mom and his aunt. and. But, you know, the, the father and son relationship, which is the core of the movie, uh, didn't, change much, didn't change much um, throughout the drafts. And a lot of that is based upon my own relationship with my father and the generational differences, which are extremely wide between me and my father. My dad, who's a very, very sweet man, is a product of the 1950s. And he's, he's like, I, not, I remember two years ago, he was telling me that he wished TV was more like Ozzie and Harriet. Like he said that two years ago, you know. So there is a, an extreme generational divide between the two of us. And that's, that's the heart of this movie is a father-son that are from two different generations who come to learn something from each other through the course of the story. Do you have a brother that you wish you could kill off? <laughs> I could kill off in Vietnam. I have a half-brother <laughs> who I do not wish I could kill off. Um, did you know that the celebrities were going to be in the film before you wrote their roles? Oh, absolutely not. There, okay. No one was attached to the movie for that first year. Okay. So everything, and when I write, I don't write for specific actors. You know, even when actors are attached, I don't really write for the specific actor. I'm just trying to make that character work as well as it can. And as I'm writing, I play them all out in my head. So I'm playing each character as I'm writing them. And I used to wonder if that was a weird thing to do, maybe a sign of deep psychosis or narcissism. And then I read an interview with Aaron Sorkin, who's one of my screenwriting heroes, and he said that when he writes, he plays all the characters in his head. So I'm like, okay, all right, well, if my hero can do it, then it's good enough for me. I think it also makes sense coming from being an actor that that would be the first thing you I you think do. so, too. And it's fun. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you, now you have written all these political films and then you jump to writing Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. Is that a burning desire inside to... to you know, I don't know, be a hero to teenage girls everywhere or something? <laughs> no, I, I um, and I can't really say much about Hunger Games, so I'll talk about this I all in the, too much, in the abstract. Fine. But um, after, so, yeah, so, so recount, game change, and then it looks like the butler's going to go into production. And I wrote Brown versus the School Board of Education. And I said, I want to try and write some more mainstream studio fare because I'd written four political projects in a row. So I made this conscious decision that I want to start trying some other things. And, uh, and I did. I did multiple scripts. I wrote uh, The Lost Symbol, which was the, it's the Da Vinci Code series. Wow. I wrote an inspiring football movie for Disney. I, wrote, I missed that uh, one. What was it that? It hasn't called? been made. Okay. And then none of these have been made. Um, maybe I should stick with political, huh? And then I wrote uh, a thriller for Warner Brothers that was based on the book um, A Conspiracy of Paper by David Liss. It was like a murder mystery thriller. So I've, I've worked on multiple of other things. You know, Hollywood, it, it, no one wants to make political movies, but you know who does want to make political movies are actors and directors. And those are the people that ultimately get a movie made is when people say yes at a very high level. So that's, I think, partly the reason why these other projects have been going. But it was a deliberate decision by me 
to just try and do some other stuff. And so I spent two and a half years working on non-political projects. And it's funny, though, because it wouldn't have seemed that way because Game Change came out last year and the Butler comes out this year. So it looks like that's all I've been doing when, in fact, I haven't done it for a while. And now I really want to get back to it. So I really want to get back to something like what I've been doing, but it's going to appear that that's all I've been doing all this time. But I really don't care how it appears. I'm just trying to just what I'm excited about in that moment. And so now what I'm the stuff I'm looking at now to do next is definitely along the lines of the films that have been made. And the film that you're going to direct, that's a smaller film, what's that about? I can't say. Okay. I can't say, but it's um it you is it's not it a really political quietly. story, you but it's a it historical. Quietly. Can I just whisper it into the mic? Uh no, I'm not going to say what it's about. But yeah, so I'm writing something small for me to direct. I've been I worked, you know, on Recount and Game Change, I was one of the producers and basically was by Jay Roach's side for pre-production and production. For people who don't know, even though Jay Roach um, I've interviewed and is a, a the greatest guy ever. It, it, uh, coming from working in foster care, mm -hmm. um, it's just incredible. The diamonds and the rough in our business are unreal. I yeah. mean, and they really exist, and he is one he's of them. He's a gem. Yeah, he's, he's, he's literally the nicest guy you'll ever meet. And he is funny because he's the biggest, one of the biggest comedy directors in Hollywood. Yes. He directed all the Austin Powers movies, which trips me out. Sometimes I'll be with him and I'll just be, I'll just say, I can't believe you directed all the Austin Powers movies. He directed Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, The Campaign, Dinner with Schmucks. He's, he's an, a legend comedy director. And, and his personality is he's zen. He's, he's this so incredibly zen guy. Calm. And then I worked really closely with Lee Daniels on The Butler, who is literally the polar opposite, is bombastic yeah. and charismatic, and he's like a movie star, you know, like this movie star personality. And, um, and so I've worked really closely with two incredibly talented people, and I've learned a lot from them. And Wood, as an actor who's now a writer, it seems like a natural progression. And what about a musical you're working on also? Yeah, where, where did you get that? I don't even remember talking about that publicly. From your butler. Uh, from my butler. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yes, I'm writing a musical, but a stage musical, with the composer of First Date, who's, which oh, is Oh, which is show, on Broadway right now. He's on Broadway right now. And uh, he's an old buddy of mine. I've known him for years. And he said, I have this idea for a musical. And he pitched it to me. And it was, I've been wanting to do this exact same subject matter as a movie for years, but knew I could never get it made. And it's an even better idea as a musical. So I just said, that is so strange. And I said yes at breakfast to him. What is it? Can't say. Can't, I can't be, just can't be throwing out all these projects in development. Danny, do you know how hard it is to get a musical made? Why are we fighting? <laughs> I hate it when we fight. All right, we won't say Gosh, it's so uncomfortable for me and the listeners. Is it really? No, obviously not. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I just don't like to say, I mean, you know when you're in the middle of it, you just don't, don't want to yeah. kind of like put it out there. Um, you write in coffee shops? Yeah, at coffee shops. I know you can afford an office, so why do you do that? Um, because I get nothing done in an office. I get nothing done in a room by myself. I've been given offices uh, when I've been on projects. I remember on Game Change, I had rewrites to do. And two days went by, and I did nothing. I just, I just zone out when I'm in a room by myself. So I told Jay, I said, I'm leaving. And I went to a coffee shop, and I did everything that I was supposed to do in two hours that I couldn't do in two days in an office. So I've just always been like that. I, I like people around. I like the white noise. It helps me focus. And I'm also, um, you know, I mean, like my personality, I've spent my whole life as an actor, right? So sitting in a room by myself is not really who I am as a person. Yes. I'm a social person. 
I'm sometimes I'm awkward, but I don't consider myself socially awkward. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, so it's just not. It's just I just like doing it, and it's been really neat because I go to Soho House a lot here in New York. I've never heard of it. Yeah. It's this place, and it's during the day. It's fantastic to write in because there's lots of people there. A lot of people use it as an office the way I do. So there's people that do all these different things. And then I invite other writers to come join me. So okay. there'll be like a table full of writers at my table. And like we have people, and so we all write, and then we all take breaks and chat, and then get back to our writing. And it's, uh, it's been very productive and a lot of fun. And you write about four hours a day. Yeah, I write about four hours, but it usually takes me an hour to get started. And so you just screw out on email? Do you do words yeah. with friends? So I do what? Words with friends? I have no friends. And I know no words. No, I just do email. And then how many projects are you working on at a given time? It completely depends. Sometimes too many. Um, last year I worked on like seven different things. And so now I'm, I'm just working on the, the musical and the script for me to direct. And what's great about those is no one's paying me to do them. So it's it's really nice. I'm it's just like my life. It's like we're we're like the same person. We're living the same life, you and I. <laughs> Minus the solo house. <laughs> the, the, the hardest part of for me, I don't know if it's the hardest part, but when a studio hires you to write a script, they're paying you, and if you turn that script in and they don't like it, they may never hire you again, and you feel tremendous pressure. So the pressure I feel is actually much more so than the actual writing. So right now, to be working on a couple projects. Uh, that are my own. It's really nice. I'm really enjoying it. And people, uh, it's been very, I've been getting a lot of offers, which has been fantastic. And I kind of don't want to take them because I'm enjoying this kind of pressure-free moment of just working on my own writing right now and not having this pressure of having a studio waiting, looking at their watch for their pages. Is it easier to pitch your personal projects or is it easier, I was just curious, with pitching them? Like when you go in or talking about them? Um, I shouldn't even use the word pitch, but I, I meant... No, that's accurate. I mean, right, the game I've been in for about the last four years is, is quote unquote, the studio assignment game. So studios have a project, they buy a book, and they buy a, a magazine article, and then they're looking to hire a writer to write this. And it's a pretty cool world to be in because the studio has already spent money on the project, so you know they're really interested in making this movie. So there's already internal interest, and so basically you're competing against other writers to get these jobs. And so to do that, you go in and you pitch, quote unquote, your take on the project, yeah. and that's how you get the job. So that's been, that, that's been all the work I've been doing for several years now. I've actually haven't really been doing much original stuff, which is I think partly why I'm enjoying the musical and the movie as well. And do you sing? Are you going to sing in the musical? I don't sing. Yeah. So I won't be in the musical. <laughs> that's not something I'm going to be appearing in. Well, that's another thing we'll be sharing in common. Um, I want to thank you so, so much for um, being on Employee of the Month when you're out, I know, publicizing this um, phenomenal film, The Butler. I do encourage people to see it. It is a great way to lose water weight. And, um, well, and I just want to do a quick plug for... Um, Lee Daniels of Lee Daniels the Butler. He did a brilliant job in the cast. is unbelievable. Forrest Whitaker and Oprah Winfrey and David Oyelowo, who plays the son. Oh, yes. These performances are off the hook. And, and all the supporting cast is great, too. Everyone's amazing, but those three performances are so special. I have to say, I get very distracted by famous people in films, and, and it's like it sucks in some ways to be famous because it's hard to watch the film when they're in it. And if it wasn't Lee Daniels directing it, I would never have... Yeah, it really works. 
He's so yeah. artistically special, and I loved Precious so much that I will go with, he, he's now joined, and you have joined. You know, there are certain people like Alma Dovar um, and David O. Russell, and David you know, that, o, yeah. that, that you'll just go and see, whether it's good or not, Woody Allen, whether it's good or not, yeah. I don't really care. I just want to see their work, and I, I want to see their oeuvre. Yeah, I feel the same way about those exact same people you mentioned. You know, I'm like David O. Russell is my, my uh, filmmaking hero right now. I just think he's just off the hook amazing. Well, I have officially invited you into that circle as someone who will continue to go and see your oof. Oh, that was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Danny. It was a real pleasure. That's it for this interview with Danny Strong. However, I will be asking all new questions at the live taping on September 18th. So please come if you can. You can go to the website, employeeofthemonthshow.com to get tickets. Again, employeeofthemonthshow.com. Thank you to Joel Arnold. Thank you to the Writers Guild for hosting us. And thanks to all of you for listening. All right. Ah, oh, lady, I'm trying to record that this is the problem. As an adult, it's very hard to make a fort because sometimes... Your co-conspirators in the form of Cocker Spaniels try to get all in it. Lady, this is my fort. Ugh.